Cast Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we can talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going to the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, sir. He is out. Look, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. He's been running cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Coming at you from the CSB studios in Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey on the MTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLA.com. Hope you guys are enjoying your new time Saturdays from 10 to 12, which will be the first broadcast. Uh, obviously, stay tuned to MTR, Radio MTRmedia.com for updates on other times the show is going to be playing. But I'm um, just going to jump into things today. i got a great show playing. A lot of topics to hit up. And we're going to start out with the New York Yankees. And the New York Yankees, uh, to this point, uh, the point that I'm broadcasting, are off to a good start. And obviously, they're not going out there. They're not going to be a juggernaut like they've been considered over the last several seasons. But what they have done is, is kind of kind of short of remarkable for really what has happened looking at, looking at this team, for the amount of injuries that they've had to deal with. And the fact that they've not only been able to tread water, but they're playing good enough baseball baseball that they're certainly in the thick of things when it comes to being in a race in the American League East. Of course, the Boston Red Sox are off to a better start. They seem to have some things clicking, which is very good for them. Looks good for what you want to see from the Boston Red Sox. But the New York Yankees, in spite of not having that that uh, that superstar power in spite of all the different injuries that they have been fighting, they have managed to hang in there. And, uh, you know, I, I was I was getting into my blog this morning and, you know, really what I like to do is I like to make comparisons between certain teams and certain things that are going on. And one thing I really wanted to get into is the comparison. And listen, once I say this, Yankee fans are going to get a little mad at me. But I'm going to make a comparison right now between the 2013 New York Yankees and the two. 2009 Mets. Obviously, once that's said, it doesn't look so hot. I have to obviously be criticizing the, the, the Yankees. No, I'm not. But at the same time, you're looking at a situation where there has been almost an unfathomable amount of injuries for what has happened to this New York Yankee team. Obviously, starting with uh, the Jeter injury in the postseason last year, the A-Rod hip surgery in the offseason, spring training comes to Shara, Granderson, they're out. And then you get into the season and you had injuries to Euclid and Jabba Chamberlain and Yvonne Nova and Francisco Cervelli um, and David Robertson. I mean, you know, when, when is it going to end? 
And as a, as a Mets fan, as a person that you know loves the game of baseball. You know, I certainly relate to this 2013 Hanky team because of obviously what happened with the Mets in 2009. And it, it's it's unfortunate to see that this team has had to battle so many injuries, which makes what they're doing right now so much more remarkable. And I, I do give them credit for the way that they've fought, the way they've been tough. They, they've gone out there and played uh, some very good baseball with a lot of guys filling in. And if you remember Jerry Manuel in 2009, uh, let's just tread water until our big guys come back. Uh, the Yankees haven't, haven't necessarily uh, – I haven't heard Joe Girardi said it specifically, but he's implied it. And I think that you really have nothing else that you could possibly do but imply the fact that you, you got to just keep your heads above water until your big players come back, until your big impact type of players are, are able to be on the field and contribute and unfortunately you, you all know the result of what happened in 2009 with the Mets this is a team that you know I think did what it could to try to stay above water but after a while they just were not putting major league players on the field and the injury bug just kept hitting them and hitting them and they, they, they ended up losing 92 games that year is that what I'm saying is going to happen in the New York Yankees right now listen I, I don't think so I do think that there's enough talent here that they should be able to at the very least play 500 ball over the next month or two until they get all their guys back and once they get their top players back they're going to be fine and I don't think there's any worries you know when it comes to what's going to happen with this team once um, their key players to and Granderson and Jeter and eventually A-Rod all get back in the lineup the lineup is going to be a lot more potent they're going to be able to score some more runs you sprinkle in the guys that have helped right now the Vernon Wells's the Travis Hapners and once you get these guys back in it's a formidable offensive team again and you know pitching wise the Yankees have been lucky enough to this point I know there's been injuries to Chamberlain and Yvonne Nova and David Robertson but for, for the most part their key starting pitchers have stayed healthy CC Sabathia Andy Pettit Hiroki Kuroda Kuroda's pitched phenomenal for them and you're looking at, at those guys who I think are very important maybe the most integral parts of this team as far as really if they lost one of those guys the whole bottom could fall out to this whole thing and one thing I was kind of studying with a little bit kind of getting into the 2009 Mets comparing it to what the Yankees have first we're going to just go over what's happened so far with the New York Yankees obviously you know about Jeter you know about A-Rod you know about Granderson and Teixeira who they lost in spring training and as you get into the season you know you see guys like Cervelli who's supposed to be a starting catcher he, start, he was just starting to kind of be a force at the plate a guy that the pitchers were getting comfortable throwing to he's out and he's out for an extended period period of time and then you throw in the injury to Euclid you throw in um, you know Eduardo Nunez who's going to be out for a little bit you don't know if he's going on the DL and then you got Nova and Chamberlain and Robertson it, it just gets to a point where it just spirals out of control how many of your regular players how many of your projected 25 man roster can you do without before the absolute uh, panic starts to set in and I think it's something that really really has to look um, scary if you're a Yankees fan because I don't think it's a spot where, where where you're looking at the team to not make the playoffs I mean not still we're still in a situation that if the Yankees miss the postseason it's going to be unacceptable and it really does have to be looked at that way because because no, nobody's expecting the Yankees to go out there and not get the job done and I think that's something that really has to be looked at it has to be taken very seriously and uh, with these injuries 
series, to me, fans are not going to look at it as, a, as an excuse. Yes, if the season ends and the Yankees aren't in the playoffs, you say, all right, well, look at all the injuries the team had to deal with. But, you know, right now what the Yankees have had good going for them are some of their fill-in guys, particularly offensive players like Vernon Wells, who I think can keep it up. Travis Hafner can probably maintain the pace that he is on. He's a very good power-hitting left-hand batter. And Lyle Overbay, who may be playing a little above his head, but those guys are kind of filling in, giving the Yankees a chance to win, which I think has helped to this point. Something that the Mets didn't necessarily get when they lost first Carlos Delgado, then Jose Reyes, then Carlos Beltran in 2009. I mean, if you remember some of the guys that were filling in for them, the Mets had Alex Cora playing shortstop. The Mets were using guys like Corey Sullivan and Jeremy Reed in center field. Daniel Murphy made the switch from the outfield to first base, which was probably the best thing to happen to him. And that was really the only spot where they got adequate production. Obviously not to the production that they got from Carlos Delgado the year before. I mean, the guy hit 38 home runs for the Mets. But the Mets lost a lot, and it, it, it really it really took its toll on the team. And as the season went on, you see some more injuries to the pitchers, whether it's John Main, who ended up returning, Oliver Perez, who had his two DL stints, Johan Santana, of course, in uh, late August, ends up being out for the season after having his uh, you know some, some uh, bone chips taken out of his arm. Um, it, it fell apart very fast. And I, I think the Yankees – maybe in their fans should kind of just sit back and caution a little bit and realize that it's quite possible it is a distinct possibility that the same thing could happen if their players don't get back soon now from what you hear you're hearing a lot of good news you hear that Alex Rodriguez is resuming baseball activities you're hearing that Curtis Granderson is playing in extended spring training games which means that you know, listen these guys could reasonably be back within a month or so A-Rod maybe by the all-star break of course a lot of people say in the offseason once he had the hip surgery and he was out for the season. So it looks like you're going to see Alex Rodriguez at some point this season. You know, love him or hate him, he, he, still, he still has the ability to hit the ball a long way. Mark Teixeira is another story. You know, you, you're, not, you're not getting necessarily the most uh, fuzzy, um, you know, reports when it comes to his health and how he's going to be with his wrist and when he's going to come back. I think that's going to be a big thing for the Yankees because they don't necessarily have anybody right now that they can play at first base, especially with Kevin Euclid out. You figure A-Rod comes back in the all-star break, he's probably going to be a DH. Euclid is probably going to be your third baseman. So you're looking at you know more of Lyle Overbay. Listen, Lyle Overbay has been a good major league player, but he is not a starting first baseman for the New York Yankees. I mean, he obviously is because he wears the uniform. He goes out there, he plays first base. But as far as a guy that can go out there and put the numbers that you would expect for, from a Yankee first baseman, whether it's Mark Teixeira, whether it was Tino Martinez, whether it's Jason Giambi, whether it was Don Mattingly, uh, I mean, listen, I mean, even back to you know guys like Chris Chambliss, you're not expecting guys to put up the numbers that Lyle Overbay will put up over the course of a full season. And that's to no fault of Lyle Overbay. Let's be honest. Let's not make this guy out to be something that he's not. I mean, he is what he is. He'll play a good defensive first base. He'll get some big hits. He's obviously going to struggle against left-hand pitchers, so you may want to find a caddy, a guy that could play a little uh, first base, maybe a right-hand batter to kind of help him out, but I think I do think out of the injuries that the New York Yankees have, and obviously Derek Jeters is very important because you don't necessarily have a shortstop. Uh, Eduardo Nunez, healthy or not, is going to kill you defensively, and, and he's a guy that I, I think I could certainly see allowing his defense to impact his offense, and I do think that that's something that's very important and it has to be looked at. 
but uh, Jeter, number one, is important to get back. Uh, unfortunately, the Yankees haven't gotten the best of news when it comes to Derek Jeter. You know, you're looking at maybe the All-Star break, maybe even a little later. And here's a guy that not only helps you with his performance on the field, both offensively and defensively, but he is your captain. He is he is really the heart and soul of your team, regardless of what level he is playing at. And I do think that this is something that the Yankees really have to consider, not having Jeter and not having to share. If they had a choice out of the guys that are injured right now and on the disabled list, I'm sure the answer would be Jeter and Teixeira as the top two guys to come back. But they'll get back Granderson. They'll get back A-Rod. Eventually, they'll get back Kevin Euclid. And in the distant future, hopefully, you know, and maybe before, even before Jeter and before Teixeira comes back, you should see your catcher Francisco Cervelli come back. But the whole Jerry Manuel 2009 Mets thing, let's tread water until our guys come back. Well, what happened in 2009 is the guys never came back. Carlos Delgado was out for the entire season. Uh, Jose Reyes, day-to-day injury with the hamstring tendon, ends up being out for the season. Carlos Beltran, the knee problems, he ends up making a return towards the end of the season. And, you know, it was a little, it was way too late. He was coming back simply because he was healthy. But the problem is, is that when you start, when you continue to not have your key players and continue to have to rely on subordinate type players that really aren't used to being big time players in a big market, uh, the results are not going to really stick there. And I, I do think that is a problem that the Yankees could very well run into. Do I project that the Yankees will finish just like the 2009 Mets? No. Do I think that the Yankees are in the direction of the 2009 Mets? Obviously, you see where it's gone since that season. If you're a New York Mets fan. No, I don't see that happening. I do see the Yankees putting a very good team together for next season. I think that they, that they still have a chance to make the playoffs because you're looking at what's happening here and the amount of the, the amount of talent that's coming back on the field should give this team a boost. It should be better than any trade that any team's going to make before the July 31st trading deadline. But the problem is you got to get them back and you want these players to come back healthy. You know, you don't want a guy like Granderson to come out there and get hurt again. You don't want Derek Jeter to come out there and not be able to play anywhere near every day. Obviously, Jeter's role is going to be diminished a little bit. He's not going to go out there and play every single game. But you want to get him to a point where he could at least play five games a week or play five games and DH a game every week. I mean, that's what the Yankees are looking to. The Yankees are going to count on these guys coming back off the disabled list to play a major, major role when it comes to the the rest of this team and what what you expect to see. But... You know, just to pretty much top off this thing, the the Mets of 2009 obviously ended up using guys like Gary Sheffield, who played in 100 games that year. Uh, we talked about Ramon Martinez and Anderson Hernandez, Corey Sullivan, Jeremy Reed, uh, Levon Hernandez, Tim Redding. Jeez, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the laundry list of players that you, you you would not consider seeing as postseason players if a team were to make the postseason uh, was kind of uh, one of the bigger major falls to the, that team of 2009 and remember the injury to JJ puts I think that was that was that was a an, an injury that happened kind of slowly and really had a significant significant uh, effect on the rest of that team 
So, you know, you look at really what happened, it essentially just all fall, fell apart. I mean, Omar Minaya in that spot was not really in a position to go out there and make big trades and make uh, huge acquisitions to replace guys that he didn't have at the moment, especially when he was expecting Reyes back soon. And he wasn't sure exactly how long Beltran was going to be out. Remember, John Mayne ends up returning before the end of the season. Oliver Perez comes back within a month or so and goes back on a DL. All these things that ended up happening were the end, re the end result was the second half of the season where they were running out of minor league team. And if you're the 2013 New York Yankees, listen, that's the worst case scenario. And let's be honest, it's something that's probably unlikely to happen. But I think it has to be thought about because you see teams like this that were actually built to win. And you have to say the 2009 Mets were built with the intention of winning. I mean, Sports Illustrated had them going to the World Series against the Angels that year. I mean, I don't think they were being absolutely clueless. But at the same time, it didn't work out that way. If you look at the Mets, who uh, obviously won the NL East in 2006, were a game away in 2007 and 2008. Yes, 2009 was probably the turning point of the team going from a competitive team to a non-competitive team. And all these things that I just said have to be considered if you're a New York Yankee fan. I do think you have to think about what's happening with the transition, what's happening with Hal Steinbrenner and Hank and Brian Cashman and Randy Levine and the thoughts of keeping the team under the $189 million luxury tax threshold for next season. And what that's going to do, not only with the current team, but the team that's going to be on the field next season because these are all things that have to be thought about are the Yan Yankees are, are they going to have to work some young pitchers into the rotation this year just so they could feel like they could use them next year uh, I think there's a lot of things to talk about hey let's be honest I mean uh, you, know, you know the New York Yankees are, aren't setting themselves up to spend 50 million dollars this offseason and a lot of what they do this season is going to have to do with what they get from the players that are currently on the disabled list. Unfortunately, they're not getting anything from them right now, nor would they be expected to. But I do think that in, in the end, the New York Yankees um, should be able to. Should Can they play a 500 month of May? Can they play a 500 month of June? And then by the end of June, have two or three, four of these players back and playing every day for them? If they do, I think it's a bad sign for the rest of the teams in the AL East. I'll tell you that. And let's be honest, really outside of the Red Sox, none of those other teams are playing at a level that you would necessarily be scared of. The Blue Jays have been terrible this year. The Rays haven't been good. The Orioles have been surprisingly better than I think some would have expected. But at the same time, they're not blowing anybody away. So I do think if you're a New York Yankee fan, it's, it's time to really have some faith in your team. Believe in the players that are in there now. But at the same time, hope you can win as many games now and then just make it easier for the veterans and the guys that you've counted on for years and years to come back and make, make the major impact that they're expected to. Once again, this is John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the day. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. This is MTR Media CEO Bill Zeltman. We appreciate you making us a part of your day. Hey, this is David Dobin. I've thought of a really good way to make someone look really stupid. Have them get in a room, sit down, and just start talking to empty walls. Now that is generally what someone would say I'm doing when I sit down to do my show. But having you guys there on the other end, the listeners, the callers, those on Twitter and Facebook who partake of the conversations throughout the week, you make this what it otherwise couldn't be. This isn't me sitting and talking like an idiot. 
This is me sitting, talking like an idiot, and having you guys join in on the fun. So come on in, 5 Eastern, 2 Pacific, every Monday, the David Dobin Show, here on MTR Radio. MTR Radio. America's radio station. Hey, welcome back. Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Uh, this is John Pielli. I'm here with uh, former Los Angeles Dodgers executive Fred Clare. Fred, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing good, John. Yeah, I appreciate you being part of the program, man. Once again, once again like I said, we're going to get into a couple things, and I'll get you out right away. Um, you know, obviously, you had, you had a long-lasting career with the, the Los Angeles Dodgers organization, really started in the, in the late 60s. Tell us a little bit about your start, this, your start and then your involvement in the public relations aspect of things. Well, I was very unfortunate, very fortunate. I did enjoy a 30-year career with the Dodgers and started as the director of publicity. And at a time when the Dodger uh, staff was very small, and so even with that early opportunity, had a, a chance to get to know uh, Walter O'Malley, Peter O'Malley, Walter Alston, all of the Dodger coaches and baseball people, uh, Al Campanis, Bill Schweppe, uh, some really uh, great individuals, and um, advanced up the ladder from publicity director to vice president of public relations and uh, promotions and then to um, executive uh, vice president and ultimately to executive vice president and general manager. Yeah, it's very interesting how, how your path kind of went around because you, you started, what did you start as a, as a reporter, right? Before that, you were... I, I was a, uh, my background was in journalism. I had been the sports editor of a small newspaper, the Pomona newspaper, and uh, then had a chance to go to Long Beach to cover the Angels uh, in 1968 and then had a chance to cover the Dodgers in 1969. So went to spring training with the Dodgers uh, as a member of the uh, Long Beach uh, newspaper. And then in July of that year, I was offered the position of director of publicity of the Dodgers. So that really was my start in baseball. And again, a very small staff. uh, So an opportunity to learn a great deal, to be uh, exposed to all areas of the game of baseball, and my real interest was what was taking place uh, on the field, and uh, so establishing those relationships and friendships uh, was very beneficial to me as I went on in my career. Hey, no question about it. Once again, it's John Pielli. I'm here with Fred Clare. Now, Fred, you were, you were kind of behind the whole campaign of the Think Blue, you know, with the whole Dodger Blue thing. Tell us a little bit about that and how that got started and how, you know, the impact that you had with that. Well, uh, when I was involved in marketing and, um, you know, trying to uh, create, as one does in marketing, uh, the best fan appeal that that you can and to establish the closest connection between the fans and and the team. And so I came up with the concept of uh, of Dodger Blue, uh, and uh, we had the right guy to uh, spread the paint on that because Tommy Lasorda had just become the Dodger your manager so this goes back to about uh, 1977 yeah, and uh, so we really launched a campaign of Dodger Blue a lot of signage a lot of awareness of the, all of that I can remember we had a, uh, a public workout in, in February of the first year where uh, the fans could come to the ballpark without charge so we encouraged everybody to wear blue and so that was kind of the, the start and really wanted to create the feeling of uh, almost a collegiate type 
type of feeling of Dodger blue. I had seen uh, and actually had paid close attention to what had happened at the University of Michigan uh, with their blue campaign and with other colleges, and uh, it clearly caught on. And so now uh, Dodger blue, think blue, is all part of the Dodger vocabulary. Yeah, no question about it, man. It looks like you did a, did a great job of getting that going. It's still something that's very, uh, very much in the limelight today. Now, as, as you moved forward and, you know, due to an unfortunate situation with, you know, Al Campanis and, you know, the, inter- the, the interview, he ends up, you know, saying the wrong things. You end up taking over as uh, v- uh, vice president and general manager in 1987. Tell us a little bit about that transition and, you know, did it, did it you know, I, and I'm sure it caught you off guard with what happened. But uh, w- was that something that you were looking to get into in the future or was that something that you were just like, all right, I'm in this position, I'm going to take it? Well, John, my philosophy with the Dodgers at all times was to simply uh, take the assignment I had been given, take the job that I had been given, and to do it uh, to the very best of my ability. And so that was uh, the way that I uh, entered every job and every position with the Dodgers. Uh, Al Campanis, of course, was a very good friend during Dodger days. But uh, when he went on uh, Nightline and uh, made some remarks which were – uh, very uh, unfortunate in every regard. Um, Peter O'Malley asked me to take over as the general manager of the team. But by that time, I had already been with the Dodgers for nearly 30 years and uh, had attended many general manager meetings with Al, uh, had been with him in dealing with uh, a number of aspects of the game, including uh, negotiations when I became the executive vice president. I knew all of our uh, people in baseball operations, had known them for a couple of decades. And so uh, when Peter asked me to take that position in 1987, it wasn't one that I was unfamiliar with or that I was uncomfortable with, realized the importance of the position, and so kind of hit the ground running. That was in April of 1987, and I knew at that time that we had several needs on our ball club. We'd had a bad season in 1986. We'd finished 16 games under 500. Uh, We had some real needs on that team as we started the 1987 season, including uh, finding a center fielder. And so one of the first uh, trades that I made was to uh, bring in John Shelby, who did a great job for us. And uh, I think my first signing that I made, probably uh, my first or second day on the job, was to sign Mickey Hatcher, who had been released by the Minnesota Twins, because I knew Mickey from his previous years with the Dodgers and uh, what an inspirational player he could be, what a versatile player he could be. So none of that was unfamiliar uh, to me. I just realized there was a tremendous scope of work that had to be done, and we did a lot during the 1987 season and then the winter meetings of before the 1988 season and then ultimately, of course, signing uh, Kirk Gibson and other players at the beginning of 1988, and uh, it all developed into a world championship in 1988. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, it's John Piel. I'm here with longtime Dodgers executive and uh, former general manager Fred Claire. Now, you put together a 1988 team and you made moves like, you know, like you'd mentioned, you brought in Kirk Gibson, Mike Davis, um, Jesse Orozco, Alfredo Griffin, a shortstop. Um, those series of moves really had an impact in kind of turning the team from a team that was not so competitive to a team that was very good. And you, you obviously saw that throughout the 1988 season. 
Uh, no, no question. Uh, we we added uh, the right pieces. I knew that uh, actually after adding uh, John Shelby as our center fielder and adding Mickey Hatcher and then late in uh, the season in 1987, I made a trade with Oakland to acquire Tim Belcher, uh, where we'd had very good reports. But even entering 1988, I felt that there were three critical uh, areas that we needed to have. We needed a shortstop, and uh, that brought in Alfredo Griffin. We needed a closer. That brought in Jay Howe, and we needed a left-handed relief guy, and that brought in Jesse Orozco. So there were other pieces that were added. Uh, Rick Dempsey, who ended up catching the final pitch of the 1988 uh, season when uh, Oral Hershiser struck out Tony Phillips uh, to, uh, to finally conclude the uh, 1988 World Series. So we not only added I think the right uh, uh, pieces to to fit into uh, what we needed because we, at this point we'd had we'd been 16 games under 500 in 1986, 16 games under 500 in 1987. Not too many teams go from there to World's Championship, but we had the right people, and we had the right people not only as players, we had the right people as far as attitudes, makeup, and they really blended together. Uh, there were some uh, wonderful guys who were a part of that team, great competitors, great individuals, and they've shown that as the years have gone on. Many of those guys, if you look back at that team, are in baseball today as managers, coaches, uh, scouts, uh, tremendous group of individuals. Yeah, no question about it. Now, you know, obviously, you spend a long time as a general manager up until about 1998 when, uh, when what, uh, you know, Fox ends up taking over, and they, they do the unprecedented thing of making that, that trade with the uh, Florida Marlins really without uh, apparently without your approval without your even knowledge of it what what happened in that deal with uh, involving Mike Piazza in 1998 well the, yeah the, the trade I had had uh, Fox had taken over as uh, ownership News Corp had taken over as ownership of the Dodgers uh, in uh, the beginning of 1998 and um, Mike Piazza was in the final year of his uh, contract for whatever reasons, uh, Fox uh, seemed very concerned about that uh, contract, but even more important uh, part of this was that uh, Fox was exploring the uh, possibility of getting a regional television network in Florida, just as they had in Los Angeles, which uh, really uh, spiked their interest in, in, the, in the Dodgers. And so the deal with uh, Mike Piazza that was made, uh, I had had some discussion uh, with the uh, Florida uh, Marlins. Actually, what I wanted to do was to keep Mike Piazza and acquire Gary Sheffield because I thought the two of them together could give us tremendous bats in the middle of our lineup. And a um, Fox executive in trying to do uh, a television deal uh, heard from the uh, Marlins ownership that they were concerned about some of the big salaries. And so the trade was made to uh, trade uh, uh, Mike Piazza, who had a very reasonable contract at that time for the very large cumbersome contracts of Gary Sheffield, Bobby Bonilla. So it was very, very unfortunate. Uh, trade was made without my knowledge and uh, ultimately that marked the end of my career 
uh, with the Dodgers because I wasn't happy with the way that that transpired, did not think that it was the right thing to do, did not think it was the right thing to do for the Dodger organization. And uh, Fox basically um, bought the team, uh, had the team for television reasons, and uh, so they accomplished what they wanted to, but I think they uh, uh, really uh, uh, hurt the, the, the Dodger baseball team at that point in time. No, I agree. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with Fred Clare. I just want to ask you one more question, if you don't mind. In regards to uh, Bill Russell, who was your, your manager at the time, of course, he was a longtime Dodger. He stems back to when he started his career in 1969. And uh, obviously before that, Tommy Lasorda was the manager for 20 years. Prior to that, Walter Austin was a guy who was a manager for over 20 years for the, for the Dodgers, you know, back to when they were in Brooklyn. Could you have seen Bill Russell, had you, you and him stayed around, being that type of guy that could have led the Dodgers for another 20 years, similar to the way Lasorda and Austin did before it? Well, I think there's every reason to think that Bill could have had a long career as a, as a manager because there, there, there was one philosophy that was there in the Dodger organization that had been there for years. It was there through the years of Walter Alston. It was there through the years of Tommy Lasorda. And the philosophy is a very basic philosophy. Championships are not won by any one individual. They're not won by the general manager. They're not won by one player. They're, they're won by a collective effort. And so that's the way that the uh, when the O'Malley's were in charge of the organization, that's the way that the organization was run. We will win together. We will lose together. Uh, when we lose, uh, we will use our experiences to get better. So uh, Billy was a longtime uh, baseball man uh, and uh, well-liked uh, by his players. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, it uh, would have been uh, better to see that he had had more experience in the minor leagues just as Walter Alston had, just as Tommy Lasorda had, I think that would have served him better, but he was certainly uh, deserving of an opportunity, and uh, uh, so that was, all of that was unfortunate the way that it played out, because it was basically Fox, after having trade made the trade, wanted to make a move to uh, uh, to uh, change uh, Billy Russell, to remove Billy Russell. It wasn't my thought, it was Fox's thought. And uh, I didn't think that that was fair to Billy, because the team had undergone tremendous changes. I told them that if they wanted to make a change, we had two people in our organization uh, who could be great candidates to manage the team. Uh, one was Mike Sosha and one was Reggie Smith. And uh, I thought both of them would be very capable. Reggie didn't really have the desire to be a major league manager, but I felt that he could have really played a key role on an interim uh, basis until uh, Mike Sosha took over as the longtime Dodger manager. But that didn't happen and uh, as has been pretty well recorded. So, unfortunately, it was a time when there were uh, there was a, a lot of changes to the fundamental beliefs of the Dodger organization, changes to the fundamental philosophy of the Dodger organization, and I, I think it's um, it really has had, it had a tremendous impact at that time and the impact was felt for many years to come. Yeah, no question about it. Listen, Fred, I want to thank you for having some time. I appreciate you being part of the program. Hopefully, we can stay in touch and uh, speak again sometimes soon, man. I, I, re, I appreciate a lot of the stories and a lot of uh, really a lot of uh, talk about, you know, your career and everything that you did with the Dodgers. Thank you very much, John. I wish you the very best. Thanks, man. Take care. That was Fred Clare, and Fred Clare got involved in the Dodgers organization really uh, um, within the 60s. And as, as you just heard him say, he was a reporter. He was a journalist, ends up getting into public relations 
and kind of gets himself promoted throughout the organization for several years and then takes over in uh, 1987 as a general manager. And, uh, you know, with, with all respect to Fred, and, I, and I, I, I appreciate that he had some time, I wasn't able to ask every single question that I wanted to. And really a couple things I'm going to go over. I'm just going to cap up the whole thing. He said, you know, he told me he only had about 10 minutes. And like I said, with any guests that I have on my show, I always want to respect their, you know, what they got going on and stuff like that. So um, uh, the, the Al Campanis comments, 1987, became a huge story on Nightline. Um, he, he, was a, he was a guy, Al Campanis, a very well-known Dodger. Uh, the general manager, a guy that has a long, long history with the O'Malley's, going back to the 40s, was a player with the Dodgers organization, and was well-loved in L.A., and he unfortunately makes those disparaging comments about uh, about black managers and general managers. And obviously that gets blown up. One of the things that I thought that was very interesting about the whole thing that really doesn't get talked about was the fact that Campanis went on the interview with Nightline without notifying anybody else in the organization. The, the O'Malley, Peter O'Malley was not aware of it. Um, really, nobody in the in the area was aware that he was going to be on until Nightline announced that he was going to come on as a guest. And you usually, if you look at media today, um, they have people come on shows to pretty much bait them and set them up into saying something that uh, they shouldn't say. This was the exact opposite. This was Al Campanis just kind of just taking a question and all of a sudden giving television and media gold when they're not even asking for it. And obviously the, un the unfortunate comments that he made were in regards to um, African-American, I believe the question was asked, um, how come African-American players haven't moved up and become managers and general managers? And then he, he made some very disparaging comments about that, which end up costing him his job and costing him a long-term uh, relationship that he had with the Los Angeles Dodgers organization. And that was unfortunate. That of course led to Fred Clare, who was a, a long time executive in the Dodgers organization to become the general manager from 1987 to, of course, 1998. And uh, the Dodgers have always been a very loyal organization. And you look at a guy like Walter Austin, a guy like Tommy Lasorda, Fred Clare being a general manager as long as he was, really until Fox News Corp got involved with the Los Angeles Dodgers, it, it was it was a very loyal type of organization. And, you know, I did want to ask questions about, you know, guys like Daryl Strawberry, Eric Davis. I uh, remember some of the moves he made in the early 90s that didn't work out so well. The Dodgers also had a very good farm system. They were able to develop guys like Mike Piazza, Raul Mondesi, and Todd Hollinsworth, who were all Rookie of the Year uh, winners. Uh, Hideo Nomo, who they brought over, it would have been nice to talk about that. But uh, a lot of different things involved with the Los Angeles Dodgers. And Really, if you look at all the things that happened from the beginning to the end when it comes to the, you know, the run of Fred Clare, I mean, you've seen a lot. And, you know, you remember the, the early 60s were just uh, kind of a, a, a weird situation because you're looking at the, the, one of the first two teams to be out there in on the West Coast in, in Los Angeles. You know, you got the Giants who moved, of course, from New York. The Dodgers who moved from Brooklyn. Uh, eventually, you get the Los Angeles Angels in 1961. But prior to that, these are two teams that just went from the East Coast to the West Coast. So it was, uh, it was a lot of stuff involved in the branding. And, of course, it was Fred Clare that really pushed the idea of Think Blue to Dodger Blue. And, of course, he had the perfect guy to be that representative, to be that guy to get it out there and make everybody aware of it in Tommy Lasorda. 
and you know once again just a phenomenal job and you know Fred Claire is a guy that uh, you know in my in my opinion he really he really should get some consideration for the Hall of Fame for what he is what he did is his years as an executive but you know so it's one of those things that hey the Hall's got their their their, their reasons here's a guy that still could have been associated in my opinion with the Los Angeles Dodgers today if it wasn't for Fox if it wasn't for them and their takeover and their kind of opinion and you 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 see it all the time you see companies whether you know whatever company it is you got people that come in here and like hey I got to make some changes I got to I got to make something happen here and sometimes things are better off left alone and you know one of the things I did want to touch on and I'm glad I got to it with Bill Russell Bill Russell was a guy who has that pedigree similar to Tommy Lasorda the long time run that he had with the team from coming up in 1969 from being the starting shortstop in the 70s and the early 80s and then staying with the organization being a coach for those years managing in the minors coming back being part of Tommy Lasorda's coaching staff there was not a better guy groomed for the position of the Los Angeles Dodgers manager after Tommy Lasorda left than Bill Russell and Bill Russell gets his opportunity, of course, maybe a little sooner than expected as Tommy Lasorda has the heart attack in uh, 1996. And, you know, he's expected to come back. He says, listen, I'm just not I'm just going to stay away. I'm going to retire. That's it. And Bill Russell's the manager. They took the interim tag off. He had his chance there. But unfortunately, no, not many of us would have known. Not many of them would have known that the Dodgers were going to go through an ownership takeover and Fox ends up getting involved. They, they end up buying the team from the O'Malley family and uh, what happens is they want to make a lot of changes and the most despicable part and honestly I, 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 I'm surprised that this is something because I've, I've read about it obviously planning to have Fred on, on her show and the, the fact that this trade between the Marlins and the Dodgers involving Mike Piazza was made without Fred Clare the general manager's uh, approval or even knowledge he said right there that he that he was he was talking he was speaking with the Marlins about maybe making a trade in some regards but he wanted to keep Mike Piazza and it was the new ownership from Fox that decides they're going to make the trade over his head or do you expect the guy to be happy with it I mean it's kind of ridiculous I mean what kind of power structure do you have where you say hey listen I'm going to come here and just make all the decisions I mean do you, do you blame Fred Claire for being upset do you, bring, you blame him for being being honest and saying that he had he had, he had no approval of the trade, nor did he have any friggin' knowledge of it? I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. And you look at what happened to the Dodgers after 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 Fox took over. I mean, I mean, were, were they winning World Series after that? Uh, were these these moves these big moves that really felt like they had to be made? Bringing in what was it, three four managers in five years or something like that? Did, did these type of moves? Uh, end up end up making his team into a winner, and the answer is absolutely no. And you and you look at a, a organization that I've always admired. I mean, I'm, I'll always be a Mets fan. I'm never going to say that I, I I am in any way a, a fan of the Los Angeles or Brooklyn Dodgers, but I am a fan of the history. And uh, you know, for an organization that goes back so far from the DeRocher days, prior to that, to the Wilmer Robinson days when they were known as the Robins in the you know the the teens and the early twenties. I mean, this is this is something that was always known as a loyal organization, and you saw right there that they they kind of just took it right away, and I thought that was a shame. 
But moving forward, we're going to just wrap things up in the first hour of the Passball Show on the MTR Radio Network. And uh, definitely excited about the new time from 10 to 12, Saturday mornings right here on the MTR Radio Network. And, uh, you know, if you ever hear anything that you want to discuss or you want to discuss with me, since we're not we're not going live, uh, feel free to tweet me. I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, I, I do want interaction. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to do it when I'm talking here and then having it play another day. But what, what I want to do is I'm going to get into certain things. I'm going to ask certain questions. I want you guys, my, my listeners, to tweet at me. And uh, obviously, you know, most of us are involved in Twitter. Uh, my Twitter handle is John underscore P-L-E, P-I-E-L-L-I. That's at J-O-H-N underscore P-I-E-L-L-I. And, you know, feel free to take it down and just tweet at me anytime. And once the show's playing on Saturday, I, I always get my mentions. So you just tweet at me and say, hey, you know, what were you talking about with this? Why, why would you say something so stupid? And I promise you, I promise you as the listener that I will respond to every tweet that's tweeted at me. So just make sure you use that as your communication, as your ways of interacting with this show as we're not going to be live. I can't take your phone calls. You're never going to hear me give out the phone number because obviously I'm not going live. But a couple other things I do want to well, I want to get into as far as programming um, Thursdays from five to seven, which, you know, those of you who are loyal past ball show fans will still hear me along with Chris Speziali uh, from five to seven. We're going to be, for the most part, going from the Hooters over in Princeton, New Jersey. And that, that being said, uh, we're going to go live. We're going to give you live programming. Uh, definitely get your chance to call in. And if you decide to stop by over in Princeton and Lawrenceville, 400 Mercer Mall, we'll get you on the air if there's something that's really uh, that you want to you want to talk about and that's the best thing that's better than calling in right i mean i mean rather than making a phone call you're there we just give you the microphone to say here you know you got a minute go three two one go that's what we're looking to do, and I think it's a, it's something, in my opinion, that's kind of revolutionary. You don't get to see it too often because you see a lot of radio shows are done in a little cubicle, in a little little square box. You know, the only way to interact is to call in or, you know, tweet or text or do this. But I, I do think this is something that's kind of exciting to, uh, to to be able to interact with the shows. And like I said, feel free. You hear my show. Hopefully I could grab, you know, as many listeners that listen to me from five to seven on a Thursday and as many people that appreciate the programming that I give. You know, it's all baseball talk all the time. We bring interviews like, you know, we just did with Fred Claire. Um, I got a lot more interviews planned, which I think are going to be a lot more a lot of very very exciting and we're going to kind of take it to the next level as far as the uh, the caliber of guests that we're getting on here and uh, i always i always take the time to just thank everybody not not only those that have tuned in but for those that have come in and been part of the show and and uh, you know i've been lucky enough and if you check out my website johnpielli.com uh, i have the uh, jpp uh passball show interviews and there's over over 100 of them right now. We're up to about, I think, 110, 115. And I've done with former players, current players, uh, analysts, writers, personalities, uh, different types of people associated with the game of baseball. And I'll have my Fred Clare interview up there. Uh, the last interview I did last week was with Lee Tinsley, uh, former outfielder for the Red Sox, uh, Phillies, a couple other teams. That's going to be up there as well. So anytime you want to go in and just kind of just, just uh, try to see what it's about. Maybe you're a first-time listener. You want to figure out what's this guy he, he talks baseball all the time what does he talk about I, I got all my shows archived on my website I got all my interviews archived on my website so those are all things that I, I want you I want you to definitely get in so I do so I do want to I do want to thank you guys uh, for, for having some time we're gonna take a quick break be back with a lot more after this
I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. M-T-R. This is Mike Montone, a.k.a. Meatball. You can hear me on the Electric Sauce Mix Show every Thursday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time here on MTR Radio, America's station. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. This is the Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. Going to finish up the first hour here. A lot more stuff going on. Of course, I got a whole second hour of uh, programming, st- stuff that I want to hit up on, different topics uh, relating to the game of baseball as it is now. And, of course, as the way it was in history, going back, you know, obviously to the 1800s. Actually, I don't think I'm going to be getting too much into the 1800s today with my my historical aspects. But I do I do will I will touch up on a couple things kind of as a little tease. I'm going to get into the last year year that the Philadelphia Athletics were in Philadelphia, which was 1954, and I have a reason of getting to that, which I will get into in the second hour as well, as Robin Roberts, and Robin Roberts had a phenomenal career. I'm going to make a comparison between him and a more contemporary pitcher, but uh, you know, also not a real not recent pitcher, but uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun getting into that, and I, I do enjoy the kind of the flashing back in history, as we did, obviously, with the uh, with having Fred Clare on. We got into the 60s Dodgers, the 70s Dodgers, the 80s Dodgers, and of course, as they, as they hit the end of the, the 20th century, and, and and really a lot of interesting stuff going on with that, and I'm you know I'm kind of happy about it. I'll have that interview up in addition to the entire past ball show. So you know certainly a lot of things to get into. John Pielli, Pass Ball Show, MTR Radio Network. And one more thing I wanted to get into is I'm actually putting together, and we'll see how it ends up broadcasting on the MTR Radio Network. I'm going to be doing, and what I'm going to try to do is a weekly fantasy baseball show. And for all you that are fantasy baseball fans, you'll get the opportunity to get some really good insight. Because, uh, you know, in addition to, you know, knowing my you know knowing my game of baseball, I also do have an idea of how farm systems work in certain teams and what players you might see at certain times. And I I think, uh, you know, I'm going to be able to uh, provide a lot of insight. It's going to be a show that I'm going to keep as interactive as a pass ball show. Uh, we're going to, you know, throw my Twitter handle out there and allow you guys to uh, pretty much, much uh, make your own suggestions because, you know, let's let's be honest. I mean, fantasy sports has taken it, you know, really taken to a level of its own. And you talk about different different leagues and the way it's set up and stuff like that. I mean, there's so many different rules. Um, you know, you got daily leagues now, which I think is is really amazing. The fact that people can actually win money on a daily basis, as far as simply just setting you know random lineups. But uh, for for all of us involved in fantasy baseball leagues, and let's be honest, I mean, if you're a baseball fan, odds are you probably are in a fantasy baseball league of some sort. I mean, listen, I mean, I mean, could, could you use some advice? I mean, listen, could you use something to at least consider? I mean, there's a lot of players, and and I, and I find. I find 
follow the uh, waiver wires of, of, of my leagues and, uh, you know, leagues that other people are in, and you see players getting dropped that you, you're just, you're just kind of surprised about. And, you know, are they worth picking up? Or, you know, why are, are all of a sudden people going after a guy like this or a guy like that? And I've said it before that – the problem that I have with fantasy baseball is really that the fact that people just simply try to do what other people are doing rather than being individuals with it. And people have an obsession and the obsession, in my opinion, is crazy with what, what you see with people going after closers. I mean, is every team's closer really going to be a valuable asset of somebody's fantasy baseball team? I mean, I mean, and unless, unless somebody's making saves for 10, 10 points a save or 15 points a save, the value of a closer in fantasy baseball is not where, where it needs to be. And I think it's something that people just kind of way overrate. I mean, you know, the, the fact that Jimmy Henderson is the closer of the Milwaukee Brewers instead of John Axford really mean that 51% of friggin' uh, leagues need to go pick him up right away? I mean, if the Mets decide that Bobby Parnell is not going to be the closer and Frank Francisco is going to be the closer, should 50% of the leagues pick up Frank Francisco? I mean, I think you should be a little objective, I think, and, and particularly with closers. Like I've said, if you listen to last week's show, they're a dime a dozen unless you're, you're really in the top 5%. Unless you're Mariano Rivera, unless you're right now Craig Kimbrell or Aroldis Chapman or even Jonathan Papelbon, unless you're at that absolute top 5%, it's a dime a dozen. You can run anybody out there to go out, get 20, 25, even 30 saves. And you'll see it. Once they make, once you see changes, a Jimmy Henderson goes out there and gets 30 saves. Is he a legitimate closer for the next 10 years? Absolutely not. There's no proof of that. I mean, I mean you're going to see the, the Carlos Marmoles and the, uh, the, the Fujikawas in Chicago, Addison Reed. You, know, you see a bunch of closers that are out there just simply doing the job. But can they actually do the job? I'm going to get into stuff like that. So stay tuned, um, you know, for further programming announcement about, you know, what I'm going to do with the show, what I'm going to call it, and really all, all the fantasy baseball knowledge and stuff that you need, you're going to hear from me, John Pielli, uh, the baseball expert right here on the MTR Radio Network. But uh, finishing up the first hour, man, one thing I want to get into, um, the, the day I'm recording a show is actually Tuesday, and I'm actually, as soon as I get out of here, I'm going to go up to City Field. We're going to see uh, Matt Harvey pitch a game against the Chicago White Sox. Now, if you're listening Saturday, you'll know that Matt Harvey is a scheduled starter for Sunday's game against the Pittsburgh Pirates. So I kind of made a little bit of a connection there. So I'm not too out of date with what I'm saying here. Uh, Matt Harvey at City Field is going to be an event. And, you know, we think as probably as the season goes on and as the Mets fall further and further out of the playoff race, the days that Matt Harvey pitches at home are going to be exciting. And think about the amount of fans that are going to want to go out there and see him for the first time. I would suggest if you're a guy that really is intrigued by Harvey, I would suggest that you go out there and you see him sooner rather than later. And I'm not saying these games are going to sell out. You know, let's be honest. I mean, listen, if Harvey throws a no-hitter tonight, I don't think they're going to sell out his Sunday start against the Pirates. I mean, they can't even sell out opening day here. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, I think it's a little crazy. But, you know, moving, moving forward, uh, you know, here's, here's a guy that's going to get a lot of attention. I do think you want your chance to kind of roam the stadium a little bit, get close, kind of watch uh, this guy kind of, kind of becoming a star. And if you're a Mets fan and you could – you know, get get a cheap ticket or something. Go down to City Field and just get there before the crowd does. Get there before, um, you know, it's the second half of the season and the Mets not, have nothing to play for. 
I think I think you go out there and you see him. This is going to be my third time seeing Harvey, and um, hopefully while this show is playing, uh, we're going to talk about the good results of the game on Tuesday with the White Sox. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. We're going to be back one more hour to pass ball show on the MTR Radio Network. Uh, we'll talk to you guys in a little bit.